It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. He's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It is the 6th of June, D-Day, of course, today marking the 74th anniversary of the Allied landing at uh, Normandy, France, and beginning of the end of World War II. We'll have a bit of a tribute to those that died on our behalf coming up in just a moment. Coming up also in just a few moments, Craig Huey of the Huey Report is going to join us for a bit of uh, Wednesday afternoon, Monday morning quarterbacking as we break down not Sunday's game, but Tuesday's election results. Some delightful surprises in many areas. We'll talk about all of that and the implications heading into the November general election. Also, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, bioethics expert Wesley Smith is going to join us. You notice the increase in animals showing up on airplanes and people bringing pets into stores, and usually under the guise of service animals. Look at my air quote, service animals. And And frankly, many of them are pets. We seem to be switching places, and now all of a sudden, the exceptionalism that has always been assigned to humankind is kind of slipping, and suddenly we're finding ourselves, at least in some arenas, ethically, morally, on a par with the animal kingdom. What's wrong with all of this, and are there inherent dangers? Wesley Smith will help us understand all of it coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. The date was June 6, 1944. Most of America was still sleeping as the sun rose that fateful morning over the coast of Normandy, France. Before the sun would set, thousands of young men would give their lives on a beach named after the heartland of America, Omaha. Men with names like Joe, Tommy, and Bill. Men we'll never meet. Fathers, brothers, and sons who will never return to the land of freedom for which they died. The announcement of the turning point of the war in Europe came in many tongues the French of Charles de Gaulle, the Polish of a foreign minister in exile, the Norwegian of King Haukon. La bataille suprême est engagée. Żołnierze, lotnicy, marynarze Polacy kraczamy w decydującą fazę generalnej rozgrywki i porachunku z Niemcami. Landsmen, some days eaten store, tortillas of plan, some hatal sikte for frigoring of Europa's unattractive folk. Back home, America heard of the battle for freedom waged by her brave sons from ABC's George Hicks, reporting from the deck of the headquarters ship Ancon. Our own ship has just gave its warning whistles, and now the flak is coming up in the sky. Looks like we're going to have a night tonight. Get them down, right? Another one coming over. And as the sun came up over cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, the message all the world waited for came from the man leading the invasion to halt Nazi tyranny and restore liberty. This is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. 
people of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Together we shall achieve victory. D-Day, June 6, 1944. A date when thousands of America's finest gave their lives so that millions could live in freedom all over the world. We, who today live to enjoy the fruit of your sacrifice, salute you. Kate there at the end. <laughs> Old girl ain't she what she used to be. All right. Well, there is our tribute to uh, those who fought on our behalf for D-Day and the liberation of Europe, which occurred exactly 74 years ago today on this date, June the 6th of 1944. Part of, of course, that fight for freedom we can continue to celebrate in our exercising of our responsibilities and rights as American citizens in the electoral process. We are, after all, a people that are self-governed. How did Lincoln put it in the Gettysburg Address? Government of, by, and for the people. Let's look at the outcome of the election yesterday. Certainly a lot of good news to go around. And while there seem to be degrees of both Democrats and Republicans claiming victory in the California statewide primary, overall it seems as if much of it skewed toward the Republicans. Joining me now is Craig Huey. Craig, of course, is a a well-known author. He's the editor of the Huey Report. We have been indebted to Craig for the wonderful resource he made available to voters across the state in his electionforum.com. And Craig, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, Craig, it's great to be with you this day after the election and and a lot of hot contested battleground races going on and the results, well, kind of mixed, uh, but some really good news. And we avoided a uh, a, a terrible outcome. So uh, overall, I'm pretty optimistic. Any big surprises? I mean, we're looking at a number of statewide ballot measures. Certainly the gubernatorial race was uh, something that a lot of people paid very close attention to, along with mayoral race in the city of San Francisco. But let me first get your thoughts on the outcome of the race. Some people were saying, well, it could end up being a tie between two Democrats, between former L.A. Mayor Antonio Villagrosa, as well as former San Francisco Mayor and current Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. At the end of the day, though, it turned out to be a bit of a different race for the former L.A. mayor? People are in shock. The professionals are shocked by these results. It really is surprising, Craig, because um, when this race started and people were looking at it in January, February, and March, everybody knew 
it would be two Democrats running for governor, just like right now there's two Democrats running for governor and two Democrats running for lieutenant governor. And that didn't happen. Uh, in California, what it is, it's the top two vote-getters. It could be two Republicans. Uh, or it could be two Democrats. And everybody's assumption was it was going to be Gavin and Antonio, and that the Democrats were going to be the ones uh, that were basically dominating the state of California. And here's the surprise, Craig. John Cox was coming in number two in all the polls that were legitimate polls. He kept coming in number two. He had the money uh, to spend, and even though he was dramatically outspent, he had enough money to spend to communicate the fact that uh, Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, the conservative groups, President Trump, and, uh, and Christian uh, leaders throughout the state were supporting him. And he came in number two. I have to wonder, in a state that is so strongly dominated by Democrats, can we see any of the outcome of the vote in the gubernatorial race last night as, what, potentially a repudiation of regressive Democrat policies? Craig, I think you've nailed it, because there's a lot of people upset. Now, uh, you know, when we take a look at what's going to go on in November, in November there's going to be on the ballot a repeal of this gas tax. Everybody who drives, they know that their gasoline is more expensive. And it's because of the government policies in Sacramento. And there's a, a, a ballot measure to appeal that. And, and then the church, uh, Christians throughout the state of California, are mobilizing against some of the bad policies that are coming out of Sacramento. Right now, it's against AB 2943. And, and Craig, that, Craig, that really did impact some of the races here in California where that was an issue. And uh, uh, for, your read, uh, for your listeners, AB 2943 is that gender confusion bill, uh, the bill that says that if you have same-sex attraction or gender confusion, that it would be illegal for you to write a book about how God can transform your life, change your life. It would be uh, illegal for you to have counseling, if you were having that problem, to be able to have counseling, uh, it would be illegal to be able to do um, uh, uh, maybe even the Bible, because I can see a lawsuit against the Bible. And so Christians are rallying against this. And as they rally against it, uh, they're throwing the vote. So when that became an issue, Christians actually went out and voted. Uh, overall, about 21% of the people voted. For Christians, it was probably closer to 12% of the Christians actually went out and voted. Only 12% of all who could have voted did vote, and 21% overall of who could vote. That's that's one vote was worth five votes in this election because so few people voted. But the shock was John Cox came in number two, and he's going to uh, go against Gavin Newsom. Gavin got 33% of the vote. John Cox got 26. And Antonio, who was supposed to be number two, he got 13%. Um, Craig, this was the dirtiest campaign. Uh, I think you've heard about how dirty this was. Uh, um, This was the dirtiest campaign in California history 
because the Charter School Association put behind Antonio uh, an outrageous amount of money. Uh, they actually invested thirty uh, eight. I'm sorry, twenty three million dollars, and that twenty three million was from the Charter School Association, and that was mainly spent about. $10 million of that was spent against John Cox, so Antonio would be number two, and about $2 million was spent for Travis Allen, the other Republican running against Cox, and that was to take away votes from John Cox, and it was the most massive failure. It was the most massive corrupt election, and it was the most massive failure I've ever seen in California politics. And I have to wonder, uh, Craig, from your vantage point, as we head into the November general election, are Democrats going to have to backtrack? Will they have to rethink their strategy, given the fact that they really anticipated that the November election would essentially pit the former L.A. mayor against the former San Francisco mayor? Instead, suddenly, they have... Gavin Newsom, certainly well-known in Northern California and to a lesser degree, perhaps known throughout the state as lieutenant governor, certainly perhaps if we want to read the uh, uh, results of last night accordingly, a higher degree of name recognition across the state than that of Antonio Villagorosa. But are they going to have to rethink their strategy now that it's Democrat against Republican come November? Well, you're thinking logically. I don't believe that the Democrats are thinking logically. They're ideologically driven. Gavin Newsom is uh, ambitious. He's an ideologue. He wants to be president. And the first thing he did when he came out with his victory statement was simply to attack Trump and say John Cox was just like Trump. And so he's going to make this an anti-Trump campaign. And while Californians are saying we have the number one crime rate, we have the number one poverty rate. We have the number one homeless rate. We have 5.5 companies leaving California every week. Uh, you know, people in, who work at Toyota, 5,000 people went to Texas uh, just a, a year and a half ago uh, as a company moved out of California because of the high regulations and taxes and being such an unfriendly state to do business in. And, and I really believe what we're going to be seeing is that the contrast between John Cox making common sense and Gavin Newsom talking about socialized medicine and uh, income for everyone, it's not going to play for independents, uh, Democrats who understand you can't uh, have government uh, sponsor and, and spend all this money, and it's not going to play with the Republicans. And I think we could see... John Cox become the governor for the state of California. And that's an interesting observation because some, even as recent as two, three years ago, might have said, well, on the heels of the Arnold Schwarzenegger experience, Mm. that probably will not bring us a Republican government, a governor in the state for a long time to come. But clearly there seems to be some miscalculation here, again, along ideological lines, as you point out. While the Democrats continue to push a very progressive direction for the state, the evidence of the number of Californians, you probably saw the poll here recently, said that something like 46 percent of Californians say at some point they are eager to leave the state, either that to find greener pastures somewhere else 
or to retire out of the state simply because either of the burden of overregulation when it comes to doing business here or because of the burden of overtaxation. Uh, in fact, some states are beginning now to even consider reversing their own income taxes. I think it's Tennessee that by 2021 is going to reverse and no longer collect state income taxes to join the other seven states around the U.S. that do not have a state income tax simply with the idea that they will be able to use it to attract Californians that are just fed up, quite frankly. You know, Craig, it, it, it's simple. Um, I, I spoke at probably 40 churches between January and Election Day talking about the election going down the ballot. And one of the questions, uh, as I do, I do this, I always ask, how many know somebody who has left California? Almost everybody raises their hand. And then I say, how many of you have thought about leaving California? Almost everybody has raised their hand. And so this is something where, it, it, this is not theoretical. Over a million and a half people have left California. And, and they leave because uh, you could go to Arizona or Texas or some other state and save 25 to 35 percent of your living expense. You can have less cost for the gasoline, and, and you can, uh, in states like Tennessee, not pay any income tax. And, you know, in any of these states, I could sell a house here in California, buy a mansion in Texas or Tennessee uh, that's brand new, and uh, for, you know, $350,000. And here in California, if you don't already own a home, you're locked out from ever owning a home unless you're making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, it, it is so sad. That's not the California that should be. You know, Craig, I was born here in California. My wife keeps saying to me, honey, I think maybe we should leave California. We'd save so much money on taxes and expenses. And I don't want to leave. And she really doesn't want to leave. But out of five kids, three have left because they know they don't have a hope in the future in California unless things change. Only two still remain. And uh, I, I, I have a small business and advertising agency. Craig, all my clients have left California. They're still my clients, but they're outside of California because the government has cha- uh, chased them away. What do you see as next steps here? We move now into certainly the November um, general election. While that might seem to be eons away, it's going to be here faster than we know it. How do you see the two sides beginning to jockey for position and attention? Well, uh, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom is going to be using the most advanced marketing techniques possible. Uh, and he's going to be doing as aggressive campaign as he can because he wants to be president of the United States. He's got to become governor, and this is his opportunity to do that. So he's going to campaign hard. John Cox, now he, uh, I mean, Gavin Newsom spent $30 million, right? Uh, that's a lot of money, uh, and he came in number one with 33%. John Cox spent $6.6 million dollars, he came in 26%. So now, John, if he's able to raise the money and he's be able to do some smart marketing and campaigning to get out the word, to be able to collect the data of people who would support him and get them to the polls, he could win this race. And so I, I see 
uh, I see a, a major battle going on at trying to communicate to the voters the difference between the two candidates. And one's going to paint the picture that, uh, that, that uh, uh, everything in California is okay and they're just going to make it better. And John's going to paint the, the realistic picture. Things are not okay. Things got to turn around. We got to save California. And this is a battle to save California. So, you know, California um, would have been a disaster for every listener and for the entire United States if John Cox was not number two. Um, What would have happened is if it was two Democrats running, the Republicans would not have come out to the poll in November. And right now, there are seven congressional race uh, seats that Democrats hope to take so they'll be able to win those seats. They need 23 seats total, and if they get 23 total, Nancy Pelosi will be uh, the Speaker of the House. The Democrats will be in charge of Congress, of the House of Representatives, and they will stop all the investigations of the corruption of the deep state. They will start impeachment proceedings against President Trump. Things will come to a halt, and there will be just absolute craziness. And that's why this race was so important. And that's why November is going to be so important uh, in these congressional races. Um, uh, John Cox gives hope that the Republicans, who every Democrat thought they could win those seats, that they have a good probability of holding on to them. Do you see the Democrats using the endorsement of Trump for Cox as a weapon against him come November? And, you know, you alluded earlier to some of the dirty politics. There was a lot that was bantied about in trying to paint him as essentially a Democrat in Republicans' clothing, a carpetbagger from Chicago, things of this sort. How difficult will it be for him to overcome all of that in a race now squaring off against Gavin Newsom? Well, there will be a lot of lies and a lot of deceit going on. And that's where the voters uh, are going to be quite confused. And and it's going to be uh, a major, major problem. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton won the state by 4 million votes. Now, this is a midterm. All those people who went out and voted in the presidential election, a lot of them are not going to be voting in this election. But nonetheless, the dirty politics is there. You just mentioned that... Uh, Many of your listeners received mailings saying that John Cox was a Democrat activist. And, and uh, you know, the fact is that when he was 21, he registered as a Democrat. 25 or 26, he registered as a Republican. He went to work with John, uh, Jack Kemp and the Ronald Reagan uh, team. He, went, uh, he ran for U.S. Senate against Barack Obama when Barack Obama first ran for U.S. Senate. He's been a Republican activist, but more importantly, he's been a free market advocate and consistent in his conservative principles and promoting uh, social issues that are important to Christians. This man is a good man, but they're going to paint him out to be as, as corrupt and evil as possible. And that's just what's going to happen. And that's why he has to be able to communicate his message to the voters that, you know, he's got a vision. He's got a plan, and he's got character. 
Craig Huey, author of the Huey Report. We appreciate the time, the insights, and certainly much of the guidance uh, that you provided over the course of the June primary at electionforum.com. We'll look forward to uh, catching up with you again as we uh, continue through this very critical midterm election cycle. There's Craig Huey. 5.30 from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett, he's got an update for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're going to wade into a little bit of dangerous territory here. And I want to begin with a disclaimer that nothing that I am about to share with you should be construed as somehow being anti-animal, that I don't care for the animal kingdom, things like that. that, that that's not true. Um, I've been raised with animals my entire life. <laughs> should probably qualify that. A few listeners are saying, you know, now I figured it out. No, <laughs> let me let me qualify by saying my family always had pets. So we, we had uh, the requisite uh, guppies and goldfish and parakeets, and we had a couple of turtles that I had creatively in my uh, – my younger years named turtle number one and turtle number two. <laughs> and then, of course, a collection of cats. And then later on in life, dogs. And uh, many of you that have been around this program for a long time have even heard um, my old English sheepdog Duke on the air a few times in the past. So I, I've always loved animals. They've always been a part of my life. And that said, I also believe that there is a place for animals and a place for human beings. And that while we love and respect animals and they can become like a member of the family, they can become a member of the family, yes, but they don't become a member of the human family. They don't somehow ascend to receiving the same level of um, exceptionalism as human beings do. But as you have watched the wave of people taking animals on airplanes, people taking animals into stores, people that are using their so-called um, – What's the term I'm looking for? They're emotional support animals. They're not service animals at all. They're pets. Now, I differentiate between somebody who has a legitimate need for a legitimate service dog versus somebody who's just decided to take Fido to the gym, Home Depot, put him on an airplane, etc. We have, I believe, begun to pry back a lid of a very dangerous direction here in society, and we're going to get to some of the reasons why as we're joined next by Wesley Smith, certainly no stranger to the KFAX microphones. He serves as senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He has been one of the world's foremost critics of things like assisted suicide and, and certainly has been very outspoken on the critical need, almost the crisis level, of a lack of proper and appropriate bioethics at so many levels, from uh, DNA to stem cell research, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Wes Smith, we welcome you to the program. Hey, good talking to you again. Long time no talk to. It has been. Delighted to have you with us. And I, I had to kind of put that disclaimer up front because I'm sure if I didn't by the end of the show and, and certainly probably even in spite of my disclaimer, I'll get plenty of hate email on this one here saying, you don't love my little dog Fifi. I love little dog well, Fifi. Know, so long as we understand Fifi belongs to the animal kingdom and not humankind. But there seems to be this trend, as I suggested, Wes, to do just the opposite, to suggest that everybody ought to be on the exact same par. Why? What's the, why is this? Where is this coming from? Well, Craig, that you felt the need to give that disclaimer shows you how deeply the animal rights movement has penetrated uh, the consciousness of this country. 
Uh, and we have to make a distinction between animal rights and animal welfare. Animal, a lot of people think they believe in animal rights when they actually don't. They believe in animal welfare. Properly understood, animal rights is an ideology. It's an anti-human ideology. It is anti-human because it holds that there is no moral distinction between human life and animal life, and that if you think that a human life has greater value or human beings should have greater uh, consideration than animals, then you are what is called speciesist, which animal rights activists say is akin to racism, that is discrimination against animals. And this, is, this kind of thinking has penetrated very deeply. It's very deep in the bioethics movement. I've been on your show where we've talked about the danger of saying that some human beings are not persons, right? And, uh, and, the, uh, and many in the bioethics movement will say, well, if you say that uh, somebody like Terry Shiver will say, uh, who had a significant cognitive impairment, has greater value than a chimpanzee or a porpoise, then you're speciesist because the porpoise and the dog or the chimpanzee have greater mental capacities than Terry Schiavo, and therefore they should have greater value than Terry Schiavo. So you can see where the dangers are here. Uh, people for the Ethical Treatment of Animals actually ran what they called the Holocaust on Your Plate campaign. And in the Holocaust on Your Plate campaign, which ran for several years, and, and uh, mainly in uh, college campuses, uh, people our age, I mean, you're younger than me, but people who, you know, of a certain age anyway, understand that you cannot make an equivalence between what happened to the Jews in the concentration death camps and what happens to animals in husbandry and in animal industries. But that's precisely what PETA did. In fact, it was so odious. They actually had photos comparing the Jews in Auschwitz piled in, the, in, a, in a dead bot, in dead pile of dead bodies with a pile of dead pigs. I mean, think about that wow. when you're talking about the fact that the dead people were Jews. I, you know, Craig, I've been in Auschwitz. I've stood in a gas chamber. I walked that awful terminus in Birkenau where Jews were, were separated for immediate slaughter or slave labor. And any movement can't, that can't distinguish between the worst evil perpetrated against human beings and animal industries and animal husbandry has no business preaching morality to anyone. But as you pointed out, if you start to say, well, you know what, human beings do have greater value, but we also have obligations, one of which is to treat animals humanely. That's animal welfare. But we also have the right to make proper use of animals. Uh, but you felt the need, as many people do now, to say, well, I don't want to abuse animals. Well, of course you don't. And, and it, that should go without saying unless you're Michael Vick. But that's, <laughs> that's the state of affairs we're in. And I have to wonder what's led to a lot of this. I mean, at, at a level, it would seem to be uh, almost contrarian to a sense of self-value, self-worth, self-preservation. And, you know, from my perspective, look, if somebody wants to argue they're on a par with us, fine. When they vote, drive cars, engage in science, pay taxes, and run for public office. Well, actually, in running for the public office, we just came through the election. I mean, I think a few did run for public office. But regardless, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you get to a level where you say, well, wait a minute, where, where is that? That sense of of self value is that, and I, I'm I'm going to suddenly turn a religious corner here on you, Wes. But I have to wonder: is part of this indicative of a percentile of the population that doesn't see their value the way God sees their value, and therefore they see no no value in themselves at all? So, as much as they are elevating 
animals to their level, they're also bringing ourselves, humankind, down to their level, aren't they? Well, actually, that's what's happening. Instead of elevating animals to the human level, they're basically saying animals, I mean, that humans are just another animal in the forest. And, and if that's how we come to self-perceive, that's just how we'll act. I was once at a, at a law school, in fact, it was Gonzaga Law School, which is a Catholic uh, college uh, up in uh, Spokane, Washington, and I was giving a, a, a lecture against animal rights and in favor of human exceptionalism, which is the uh, idea that human beings have ultimate moral value objectively, simply and merely because we're human. And the other side of that coin, in addition to our inherent value, sanctity of life ethic, however you want to call it, but the other part of that is we are the only moral species. We are the only species in the known universe that have duties, that have obligations, that understand right from wrong. Animals cannot understand those concepts. You can train a dog not to go on the couch. You can train a dog, uh, for example, um, not to do certain things, uh, let's say uh, not to attack a baby. But if a, but if a pit bull attacks a baby, the pit bull isn't evil. The pit bull does, is just being a, being a pit bull. It isn't a moral animal. It cannot be convicted of a crime, as an example. It, it can be put down, for example, to protect uh, human safety and animal safety, but it isn't because it's a criminal. It isn't capable of being a criminal. Um, but so I was at Gonzaga, and and I kept saying that you know human beings have obligations. The fact that we're exceptional doesn't mean we can do whatever we want to animals. Uh, and the biblical view, of course, is the same way. I mean, there were obvious uh, rules in the, in Jewish uh, in, in the Jewish law that you treated animals properly. You know better than I would, but uh, you know you let an oxen uh, eat while it's uh, moving the wheel, right? And and that kind of thing. And and finally, a a student got up, one of the animal rights students, and said, "You say that." Because human exceptions, we can do whatever we want. And I, you know, I said, how many times did I say that isn't true? And I finally said to him, I said, sir, you tell me if being human in and of itself isn't why we have the obligation to not abuse animals and to treat them humanely. Tell me what gives us that obligation. And it was like the old Jackie Gleason show, uh, Honeymooners, Hamina, Hamina, Hamina. <laughs> he had no answer because the only answer is. The reason we have the obligation to treat animals properly is because we're human beings, because we know right from wrong, and since we're the only species in the known universe that actually is of that capacity, that means by definition we're exceptional. And, you know, the interesting thing here, too, and I want to talk about this in depth when we come back after the break, there is sort of the, the side effect of all of this, that we unwittingly head down a slippery slope as we have uh, not elevated necessarily animals to our level, but we have reduced ourselves to their level, that, that not only do we see them at, at a higher plane, but we also therefore seem to see each other at a lower plane. I mean, if you look at the treatment that we engage in against each other. And I understand that there are degrees to which this has taken place since Cain and Abel. But that said, you've got to wonder if this is a slippery slope. If we no longer believe in human exceptionalism and we're all on the same par, uh, at what point do we also say that human life is cheap, it's not valuable, it's of, of no difference than that of the monkeys or the ants that crawl underneath your sink? And what is the potential side effect for all of that? What is the implications of that for the future of mankind? We're discussing these topics with Wes Smith, 
Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He is one of the nation's leading experts when addressing the question of bioethics in America today. And um, we're going to get back to more of our conversation with Wesley Smith right after a brief timeout and an update on traffic. The latest, Michael Bennett, what's going on over there at the KFAX Traffic Center? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. We're talking about the very topic, this, well, what appears to be a slippery slope as we seek to, I don't know, whether it's the approach of elevating animals to our level or reducing ourselves to theirs. I just have to wonder, Wes, if this doesn't open up a very dangerous arena here where suddenly not only have we sort of mixed the value quotients here, but in doing so, how soon is it before we begin to say that, well, you know, then if... Humans are just like animals. Uh, We might be in the opinions and viewpoints of some to be as easily dispensable. And, you know, let's face it, if we have an overpopulation of of, uh, feral cats in the neighborhood, we collect them all up and euthanize them. How soon before it begins to impact the U.S. population? We say, well, we got an aging population. All these folks here over 85, they're no longer working. They're not really contributing financially to American society. They collect a lot of money when it comes to Medicare and Social Security. So why not euthanize them? I mean, how soon is it before that's just the next natural digression of this? Well, when you devalue human exceptionalism, when you say that human beings are not inherently equally worthy of life, as just an example, you can end up in some very ugly places. And animal rights isn't the worst of it, Craig. Did you know that four rivers in the world and two glaciers and one orangutan have now been declared legal persons entitled to rights? The Amazon River is now a legal person entitled to write. This is the nature rights movement. And these people are deadly serious. They want the rights of nature to be co-equal to those of human beings. It's called the right to persist and exist and maintain life cycles. And and people can look this up in in Google for nature rights, and I've written quite a bit about it. And it's incredibly alarming. So that viruses, mosquitoes, rivers, Granite outcroppings are now being pushed as becoming, and basically it's an earth religion, uh, a neo-paganism, that says that the earth is a living entity, it's called the Gaia theory, and we are now seeing in 30 cities in this country have nature rights laws, including, by the way, Santa Monica. From from a natural law, from a historical natural law perspective, then what are you telling me here, that essentially a river, an ocean, dependent upon how they want to label it, can suddenly then be uh, um, eligible for writ of habeas corpus? They get their day in court? The orangutan I mentioned was given a writ of habeas corpus by a court in Argentina. (laughs) I just wrote a, a national review... Uh, that there was an attempt in New York State to give chimpanzees writs of habeas corpus. It failed, and there was an attempt to appeal to that court, Supreme Court, which is called the Court of Appeals, but it's the Supreme Court of New York. Uh, the right of appeal was rejected, but one of the justice judges, think about this, one of the judges said that the time has come to consider seriously granting chimpanzees personhood rights human-style rights, and indeed potentially writs of habeas corpus. 
a judge of the New York, what in essence is, what not in essence, but it is their highest court. So this is, you know, people laugh and roll their eyes and say, oh, oh what will they think of next? It's happening. This isn't something that we should laugh off anymore because that kind of complacency allows this stuff to get through. You've got millions of dollars being poured into these radical environmental groups that want to thwart human thriving by making it so what's really going on here, obviously nature can't have rights because nature can't understand any of it. What you're really doing is weaponizing radical environmentalists to go into courts in the name of nature to impose their view of what a particular environmental policy should be. And you know, I used to live in California. I left there last year, and I've lived there my whole life. And you know what's happened to the Central Valley because of this stuff. You know how much of that that area, and it's not even nature rights yet, and how much of the Central Valley is lying fallow and brown and dead because you can't have a proper use for human benefit. Well, and the irony is that the, the, the absurdity of it all, that we look at this and say that on one hand, we're elevating uh, plants and trees to the same level of import, uh, importance as human beings, and at the other hand, we're, we're creating categories of non-persons where we want to stipulate, well, the unborn or a newborn up to X exactly. number of months or a child that maybe is, you know, either cognitively disabled or has been diagnosed with, you know, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, you name it, suddenly now doesn't qualify for the label to be a part of humankind. Wow. Exactly. And you are, you are seeing a, what I call a pogrom. Just as one example against people with Down syndrome, there were four babies born with Down syndrome in Denmark in the last year they reported. Four. Iceland brags that it has a zero Down syndrome birth rate. They do that because they're destroying these precious children in the womb. When I grew up, people with Down syndrome were part of the fabric of society. They were the mo- they are the most loving and gentle people you can imagine. We have much we could learn from our brothers and sisters with Down, and yet they're being wiped off the face of the earth as people with very well-funded uh, environmental groups are saying we should t- turn the Colorado River into a person, and there was a lawsuit filed to that very end, and they promised to file hundreds of more until they get what they want. Remember, it just takes one judge. Let me ask you this as we wrap up our time together, Wes, for people that we have just absolutely uh, gobsmacked with uh, all of these revelations, or they kind of had a suspicion but had no idea it was all this bad and we were heading down such a precarious, slippery slope here. How do people get educated on this? How do we begin to to reverse the tide? Well, first off, people have to understand and, and, and hopefully realize that these things are no longer unthinkable. They're not only thinkable, they're beginning to happen. Uh, I feel like I'm on the Titanic shooting up flares in the night uh, because too many people are not actually grappling with this. But if people really want to see what's happening, if they will go to uh, uh, my, uh, I I write on National Review Online. There's a lot of, uh, go to my archive there. There's a lot of articles on this. You can do a Google search, Wesley J. Smith, Nature Rights, Wesley J. Smith, Animal Rights. Uh, I've got articles on First Things in the Weekly Standard. And if people want to follow what I'm writing on these issues, whether it's bioethics, radical environmentalism, anything that impacts the, uh, the human exceptionalism issue, uh, follow me on Twitter, at Forced Exit. 
uh, and follow me on Facebook because I post all of my articles in those locations and people can read them. And then tell your friends because, you know, of course the first response is, oh, <laughs> how can they even think such a thing? But they are thinking it and it will have consequences. And you've identified them in this interview, Craig. You know, and the utter irony to this is, and I think it's part of our lackadaisical attitude, that some of this appears to be, as I mentioned a moment ago, so outlandish, so far-fetched, so preposterous, that people dismiss it out of hand, thinking, well, that just could never possibly happen. People don't seriously think that way. Oh, not only are they thinking that way, they are doing that way, they are judging that way, they are legislating that way. And one of the biggest arenas, and we're going to talk about this in a future conversation with Wes, we'll have to get an hour set aside. One of the biggest ways in which this is rearing its ugly head is so-called physician-assisted suicide. And the duplicity going on there, you talked a moment ago, Wes, about the fact that some countries are saying, oh, we only had four Down syndrome babies born in an entire year. Yeah, because they don't tell you all the ones that they killed in vitro. And while we're not, we're, we're finding cases where legislation is being passed, regulations are being put into place, that if somebody commits suicide through physician-assisted suicide, that the official death certificate doesn't list suicide as the cause or medications administered by a physician in an assisted suicide case, but rather whatever the underlying terminal illness is. So if you get diagnosed with cancer today and decide, oh, I just can't go through uh, radiation and chemotherapy and it's just too much for me and decide to take your life with the help of a physician, in a lot of places your death certificate won't read cause of death suicide. It'll read cancer. Wow. And that's all being done to be duplicitous on purpose, to pull the wool over your eyes. And if you don't think that there is a nefarious motivation behind all of this, that it scared the living daylights out of you, you get another thing coming. Wes Smith, as always, we appreciate the time. And i uh, got to get you back on real soon here, Wes, so we can spend an hour together and go a little bit deeper. National Review is where many of his musings and articles will appear. Forced exit on Twitter. And, of course, you can always Google Wes J. Smith or Wesley J. Smith for more information. All right, we're here at uh, 602. Let's get caught up on traffic right quick. And got the latest for you with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.